We praise you. We give you all glory and honor. It's in your name that we say together. Amen. Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Good morning. I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 19, and then 30 through 32, speaking on the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins." then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Essential Doctrine is our current teaching series. We're using the word doctrine as an acronym, walking through the essential beliefs of the Christian faith. What every Christian should know Pop quiz time, the D stands for what? Deity of Christ. O stands for original sin, D-O-C. C stands for canon of scripture, and D-O-C-T, we talked about it last week, stands for what? The Trinity, and this weekend we're talking about the R, resurrection. Grab your sermon notes out. You'll see there, also keep your Bibles open, quite a lengthy text, we'll be referring back to that text 
throughout our message, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 19, and 30 through 32. At the heart of the gospel, the basic message of the Christian faith is the resurrection. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. In fact, here's my thesis statement for this message. I'll just summarize it here right at the front end. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just a historical fact. It is a historical fact, but it's more than a historical fact. It can and should be a daily reality of faith powerfully transforming every part of our lives. That's the thesis statement. So you can see the notes are divided up into those two sections. And as, you, as you've heard me say before, this is what I love about the gospel. The gospel is head sound and heart satisfying. It's rational and it's relational. You have to have both parts. You're not going to experience a life change unless you have both of those and you understand both of those. So one, we talk about the fact, and the other one, we'll talk about our faith and the difference it makes in our lives. So let's take a look at our notes here. So the resurrection is head sound. First of all, this is about fact. So let me give you some evidence that Paul is giving us here in this text. There's four pieces of evidence that I'll point out to you. Here's the first fill in the blank on your notes. Uh, Early accounts. So this is part of the evidence he's, he's establishing that that the resurrection is a historical fact. It's, it's uh, historical, it's evidential, it's factual. And so he starts here with the early accounts. Look at verses three and four. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. So he's giving us the gospel here, but it's pretty significant in what he says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So it was something that he received. The gospel is not does not come about through uh, human speculation. We didn't come up with this, but it's by divine revelation. So he received the gospel. Everyone else received the gospel. It's by divine revelation. Important to remember. And this is what he says, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. A couple thoughts here as it relates to verses three and four. These two verses were widely accepted as the earliest church creed circulating about 24 to 36 months after Jesus, about two to three years right after his resurrection. So as an early church creed is what he's stating here. And and so it was within AD 30 to 36, this was their their creed, their, their faith. They declared this. But also you need to know that 1 Corinthians was written about 15 years after Jesus, after Jesus' resurrection. And what that does is it refutes the idea that it was legend. Oftentimes people say, oh, it was just legend. They passed it on from generation to generation. It actually takes two generations to establish legend. This is within this generation, 15 years, that this book is written This letter is written to the church in Corinth. Now, here's something else. Did you notice twice that he says, he says something twice, he repeats himself twice, in that that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He's trying to make a point here, isn't he? What, What does he mean by that? 
Well, in accordance with the scriptures, this is, this is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy or predictions with greater odds than if you were to guess the numbers accurately of five lottery Powerball winning tickets in, in a row. And, and if you did that, you would probably be arrested, okay? They would be very suspicious. But that's the odds. And now, how many predictions, Old Testament predictions did Jesus fulfill that we see in the, in the New Testament with his first coming? 300. Overwhelming. Overwhelming evidence that he is the Messiah. And, um, and that's why he says, as it is written, as it is written. This is predicted many years before this. This is the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies. That's important. That's part of the evidence that he's, he's giving here. Now, close to 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, I just gave you a couple examples here. One was in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, 8 through 12. So 700 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah 53, 8 through 12 predicted his birth, death, and resurrection. Pretty profound. And then we see the fulfillment of that, obviously, there in the New Testament writings. And what's interesting, too, is that even Jesus predicted his resurrection. Matthew 12, Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, John 2. This is what I find really interesting, is that he told his disciples over and over again, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, I'm going to raise again. And you would think that they would immediately go to his grave to see if not he is raised. But no, they're hunkered down, frightened to death, thinking they're next in line, they're going to be taken out. It's crazy. Why did they go and check the tomb? Because they didn't get it. They were thick-headed. It, took, it wasn't until after the resurrection they began to understand all that he had said. It began to make sense to them. And, and so, so you got early accounts. Here's the next uh, strong argument, empty tomb. Empty tomb, verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, saying the tomb was empty. We also know that there was an empty tomb because Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts all report the empty tomb. And Jesus was buried in a tomb that was easy to find, Isaiah 53, 9, Matthew 27, 57 through 60. And what's also interesting, let me ask you this question, see if you guys know this. Who were the first ones to find the empty tomb? The women. Woo! I heard a woo over here. Yeah, the women. So let me tell you everything I know about women. Well, that's about it. <laughs> Sorry about that. But uh, you know what was interesting about this testimony of women in this culture? It was, they were not respected in a, in a court of law as one uh, one first century writer said, trying to refute the resurrection, this is, how he, this is his argument against the resurrection. He said, women are not reliable witnesses because they are too hysterical. And last night, there was a guy on the service that said, amen. And then he was knocked unconscious by his wife. <laughs> Poor guy, pray for him, okay? I was kind of waiting to see if there was any amens out there, but you guys were like ducked your head a little bit like on it. And I started looking around. Isn't that interesting? That they thought, oh, they, women are, don't have, have no credibility. So why, that sounds a little bit counterproductive that all the gospels would say 
And the gospel accounts and these early accounts would say that women were the ones that discovered the empty tomb. Doesn't that sound counterproductive considering the culture? Why would that be written down? Because it's true. (laughs) Because it's just flat out true. And the Bible isn't a legend. It's, It's eyewitness accounts. And that's how it went down. And so it's almost like God's saying, deal with it. You know, whatever you think. You know, and so it's just, it's, I absolutely love it. That's, and that's just, uh, that's really great. There's also an interesting thing that I read a number of years ago is Acts 26, 26. It's Paul. Paul goes before King Agrippa and Governor Festus and presents the gospel because he's, he's under arrest because of proclaiming the gospel. Stirring up, you know, wherever the gospel was preached, there was either a riot or revival. Well, there was a lot of riots with Paul, and so they threw him in jail. And so now he's standing before King Agrippa and Governor Festus. He presents the gospel. And listen to what it says here. Verses 24 through 26 of Acts 26. And as he was saying these things, in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind because he's talking about the resurrected Christ and how he encountered him on the road to Damascus and, and he had that encounter and all of that. And, and, but Paul responds by saying, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. You hear what he's saying? This is public knowledge. The gospel's historical, it's evidential, it's factual is what he's saying. It wasn't done in the corner somewhere, hidden. Mormonism with Joseph Smith, in a corner. Islam, Muhammad, in the corner. They had these so-called revelations from God, but it was all by themselves. This, is, this was out in the open. Jehovah Witnesses, Charles Taz Russell, that was in the corner. He'd come up with some newfangled revelation from God that this is how it's supposed to go down. Christian Science, Mary Baker Eddy, in the corner. It wasn't out in the open. I mean, if you do the research... Most people are too lazy to do the research and really begin to evaluate the claims of Christianity in comparison to the major cults and religions of our world today. Now, why is all of this important as it relates to the empty tomb? Well, listen to what one biblical scholar said. If there was only an empty tomb and there had been no sightings, people would have believed the body was stolen. If it had only had eyewitnesses claiming to have seen him, but the tomb still had the body in in it, then everyone would have thought they were hallucinating. But only if all were true, the empty tomb, the sightings, and the permanently changed lives of the witnesses, only if all of these were true could Christianity have ever, ever begun. So it takes us now to the third one. So you got early accounts, empty tomb, eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony. Verses five through eight. I, I, I love this list. This is a beautiful list. Who's first on the list? And, and that he appeared to, who's Cephas? Who's Cephas? Anybody? Peter. So he first appears to Cephas, that backstabbing betrayer. Okay? And I'm sure that, those, that did come to Jesus' mouth as he, as he embraced him. It's, it's not 
our obedience. It's not our changed life that brings the love of Christ. It's the love of Christ that brings the changed life. And he came to Cephas. Why? Because I'm sure Cephas was filled with shame and guilt. He was overwhelmed. So he comes to Cephas. Peter. Oh, Peter, come here. I love you, Peter. And then he goes, as you go through the list, it's, it's, it's really amazing. Then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. They've died. They've passed on. Which, by the way, as a Christian, that's what death is for us. We just fall asleep. And we wake up into the arms of our Savior. That easy, that quick. Maybe getting there might not be so easy, okay? Getting to that place where we fall asleep, okay? Sometimes that might be a, a bit of torment. But, uh, but that's, that's how the Bible refers. That's what Jesus said, have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Who's James? Yeah. So let me ask you this. What would it take for the half-brother of Jesus to think that Jesus is truly the Messiah? How about the resurrection? Yeah. How about the resurrection? Because they were pretty critical of Jesus. If you looked at his family members, his, you know, they, were, they criticized him. And then all of a sudden, James now is writing a letter in the Bible, and Jude too. Why? Because of the resurrection. They could not deny that he, he was the Messiah. And so appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So, so Paul's letter was to a church, and therefore it was a public document written to be read aloud. So Paul was inviting anyone who doubted that Jesus had appeared to people after his death to go and talk to the eyewitnesses if they wished. And Paul couldn't have made such a challenge if those eyewitnesses didn't exist. And I think you can add to that also uh, that Jesus appeared physically alive three days after his death based on Matthew 28, John 20, Luke 24. And then when you look at the eyewitnesses and the dramatic change that took place in their lives, the dramatic change in the eyewitnesses, the disciples, I mean, they go from frightened and hiding, John 20, 19. I mean, like I said, they're hunkered down. They're thinking they're next in line. They're going to be taken out, and they go from that to courageous witnesses of the resurrected Savior. That's the whole book of Acts. In fact, when the heat gets turned up and they're coming after them, they just pray, don't take away that, God. Give us the strength to endure it. Give us the strength to go through it. Give us the strength to continue to proclaim who you are, even if it means to our deaths and indeed for many, it meant their deaths, along with the fact that many of these eyewitnesses also were tortured to death. People will die for what they believe is true, but nobody will die for a lie. Blaise Pascal put it this way. I love, I love what he says. I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. I do too. And that's what happened to many of them here. So early accounts, empty tomb, eyewitness testimony, emergence of the church. Look at verses 9 through 11. For I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then 
it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. And so Paul had major influence on that early church, and that early church exploded. You can read about it in the book of Acts. In fact, the book of Acts is primarily about the explosion of the early church and then Paul's missionary journeys. And also, you, you need to know that Paul's letters to the churches, out of, he, he wrote a big part of the New Testament, and nine of those 13 letters were directly to local churches. And so the church just took off as a result of the resurrection. So the burden of proof isn't uh, on the believer, but on the unbeliever to explain why Christianity exploded in the first century. Why did Christianity emerge so quickly with such power after the resurrection? Because it happened. No other group of Messianic followers in that area concluded their leader was raised from the dead. By the way, there were other Messianic groups that followed leaders who were killed but never came back from the grave. And so this was the only one of many that he actually came back from the grave, the true Messiah. No group of Jews ever worshipped a human being as God like the early Jewish Christians. What changed their worldview virtually overnight? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then when you look at the character of the early church, they gave their lives to feeding the poor, caring for widows and orphans, helping the hurting and needy. The day of worship, after thousands of years, they started worshiping on Sunday as opposed to Saturday. And that's, the evidence of that is in Acts 27 and 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Oftentimes I'll have people say, I had a guy not too long ago come up and say, hey, you know you're worshiping on the wrong day. No, I worship every day, okay, dude? And... Uh, but I, but I said, That's, the early church worshipped on, on Sunday. That was the day that they, and he was trying to get me to say that it was supposed to be on Saturday and all that. It's, it's just crazy how people get into crazy stuff. But the, the day of worship was on Sunday. The object of worship was Christ Jesus. The preaching of their worship became the proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And not only that, theological changes in the church began to take place. They stopped observing the Old Testament ceremonial laws and started celebrating communion and water baptism which are symbols of our salvation that represent the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it's head sound. It's based on fact. Early accounts, empty tomb, eyewitnesses, emergence of the church. Let's get to now how does this apply to our lives? How does this apply to our lives? Heart satisfying our faith. Now three different times, three different places here in our text, Paul uses deductive logic and reasoning. And I'll point these out to you. So there's three things it does. It changes our lives. Changes the way we think, feel, and live. Let's take a look at the first one. It changes the way we think. This is the intellectual argument. Listen to what he says in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. Anybody know what that word vain means? Yeah, empty. In fact, I looked it up in the Greek. The New Testament was written in the Koine Greek, and the Greek literally means this, empty, devoid of truth, no purpose, fruitless, and without effect. So if Christ has not been raised, this is what he's saying. <clears throat> Your faith is empty, devoid of truth, no purpose, fruitless, without effect. Now, we can. as I was thinking about that, then I thought, okay, but... That's not true. He did rise from the grave. So our faith is not in vain. It's not in vain. So what would that mean? It means this. If Christ has been raised, then your faith 
Your faith gives you fullness of life, truth, purpose, its fruitfulness, and power. So so here's the point. I was thinking as I was reflecting on this, whatever you're going through, whatever pain, sometimes that pain can create a perplexity. It's like, where did this come from? Why is this happening? Why am I struggling so much? I'm a believer in Christ. So much for God taking care of me. Why is this such a struggle? I'm telling you, whatever your struggle is, whether it's relational or it's physical or it's spiritual or it's financial, whatever it is, it's not in vain It's not in vain. It's not futile. Your struggle is not in vain because of the resurrection. Let me say it again. That's what these words mean. Because it not being in vain, if Christ has been raised, then your faith faith gives you fullness of life, truth, purpose, fruitfulness, and power, even in the midst of of difficulties. So the resurrection, listen to me, the resurrection becomes our part of our interpretive grid. You, you do know that. Everyone has an interpretive grid, a way of evaluating the events of life that happen to them. It's not the events of life that either make you or break you. It's your values and your evaluations, your interpretive grid about the events of life that either make you or break you. So what kind of an interpretive grid do you have? It should, it should include the resurrection of Jesus. Your life is not in vain. It's not meaningless. It's not mundane. God is working in your life no matter what you're going through. Whatever you're facing, that's resurrection life that he offers us. Your suffering, your pain, your perplexity, the most difficult times you'll ever face are not in vain. Let me ask you this question. Are you a Christian because it works or because it's true? I've oftentimes seen people defect from the faith because it, well, it didn't work for me. Maybe I'm glad it works for you, but it didn't work for me. And I'm thinking, what do you mean it didn't work for you? You were reconciled to the creator of the universe through the blood of his son. You're adopted into his family. You're lavished with his love. You're empowered by his Holy Spirit. You're telling me that didn't work for you? No, what they often say is that my circumstances didn't quite work out the way I thought because, because oftentimes they have these expectations of a painless and problem-free life that I'll have all the success I've ever wanted now that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. By the way, that's taught in a lot of pulpits in America today. It's called the health and wealth gospel. It's an abomination. It's horrible. It sets people up for major failure and defection from the faith. Why are you a believer today? Because it works or because it's true? Here's another question. And, and I'm, I'm very happy that we have a number of typically unbelievers that will come and attend here on any given weekend service. And we're excited that you are here. But my question for you, are you, are you not a Christian because you did the research and it isn't true? Oftentimes I've, I've asked that, and they haven't done a bit of research. 
well, it didn't work for me, or they didn't really look at it to see if it was true. They're just looking for something that works for them. There's a way that seems right to a man that leads to destruction. That's said twice in the book of Proverbs. So Paul would say, I'm not a Christian because it works, but because it's true. I mean, look at the life of Paul. Acts 7, you've got Stephen stoned, and that's not the old kind of stoned. Or that's the old kind of stone, not the new kind of stone. Okay, that's what I meant. Okay, that's the, that's the, <laughs> that's the old kind of stone. I kind of flipped that, didn't I? But uh, he got stoned because he just proclaimed the gospel and it brought a riot and they killed him. And guess who was standing by to give approval to that? His name was Saul before he became Paul. And in Acts, so that's Acts 7, Stephen is stoned. Acts 8, Saul approves. Acts 9, Saul is breathing threats and murder against Christians on the road to Damascus and encounters the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so this dude, this apostle Paul, this Saul that becomes Paul on the road to Damascus, he goes from being a persecutor of Christ to being persecuted for Christ. Now let me ask, Paul, how'd that work for you? Not too good. Actually, very good, depending on how you define work. Here's what Jesus told his disciples just before he was going to be hanging on the cross. 1633 of John. He said, I tell you these things before they happen so that in me you may have peace. He knew that all hell was going to break loose in their life. He was going to be hanging on the cross. They're going to be so disillusioned. They're going to be so perplexed by all of what's going on. I'm telling you before it happens, so that you, in me you'll have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation. He's saying, count on it. It's going to be painful. You're going to be perplexed. You're going to be overwhelmed by trauma at times. But he didn't stop there. I love it. But he says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, now, overcoming the world doesn't necessarily mean it's an escape from the pain and the problems, but it's, it's endurance. It's a sense of toughness in the midst of that. And, and so he will get you through those problems. But not only that, those problems, as you work through those problems, you'll realize more than ever that those problems are working for you. It's not in vain God is drawing you closer to himself and he's, and he's reshaping you to become more like Christ, having a character that can endure anything. That's what he's doing. That's resurrection life. So the resurrection, the gospel is not a promise of a painless or problem-free life, but it is the promise of fullness of life, truth, purpose, Fruitfulness and power despite pain and problems. Despite pain and problems. What else does the resurrection really tell us as it relates to how we should think? What should be part of our interpretive grid? Well, it proves that Jesus is who he said he is and did what he came to do. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Listen to what Timothy Keller said. 
in uh, his book, The Reason for God. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. It doesn't matter whether you like his teaching or not. I've heard many people say, oh, I don't really like his teaching. It's like it doesn't matter whether you like his teaching or not. He rose from the dead. This is God in human flesh. Wake up. You gotta be kidding me. You better follow him. Because anything other than that is, is, is death. And, uh, and you follow him because of his perfect love and infinite wisdom for us. Also, I think, too, the resurrection is showing us here, once again, it is the hinge upon which the story of the world pivots. 1 Corinthians 15.3, part of our text, this is of first importance, the gospel message. So this is what you need to keep in mind. Anytime when you read the Bible, we teach this around here a lot, the Bible is not a set of disconnected stories giving us life lessons on what we must do to be right with God. The Bible, it is a single story of what God has done through his son to make us right with him. Here's the narrative. And whether you want to be a part of it or not, I would suggest you be a part of this narrative. This is the story of God. This is what he's up to. He's not here to fulfill your purpose and plans. We exist to fulfill his purpose and plans. And you'll never be more satisfied when, than when you do that. Here's his purpose and plans. You could summarize the whole Bible like this. Genesis 1 and 2, creation. He created us as objects of his love so that we could be in relationship with him. But we thought we were smarter than him and more loving than him. And so we got chapters 1 and 2, Genesis, creation. Chapter 3, you got fall, crash and burn. That's why we have all the sin and suffering on this planet Earth. But from, verse, from chapter 3 all the way through the rest of the Bible, so you got Creation, fall, redemption. It's all about redemption. The first coming of Christ. And then you hit Revelation, and it's all about restoration. The life, the happily ever after we all long for. That's his second coming. And that's the story. That's what's being played out, even to this very day. That's all part of God's plan. Now think about this. Those looking at Jesus as he was dying on the cross had no idea that they were looking at the greatest act of salvation in history. The cross of Jesus Christ is evidence that in the hands of the Redeemer, moments of apparent defeat, you may be going through a time, a moment of apparent defeat, crucifixions, pain and perplexity, become wonderful moments of grace and victory, resurrections. God is working. It's not in vain. It's not in vain. God is at work in the worst of times doing a thousand things no one can see but him for our good and his glory. Romans 8.28, Genesis 50.20. So this changes the way you think and how you face difficulties. The resurrection becomes a part of your interpretive grid. And believe me, if it's not part of your interpretive grid, you're going to be overwhelmed by the trials of life. You're going to be taken out by the temptations of life. He's for us. He loves us. He's with us. Here's the next one. Changes the way that we feel. <clears throat> this is the emotional argument. So it changes the way, way I think. That's the intellectual argument. Changes the way I feel. This is the emotional argument. Look at verse 17 of our text. 
And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Now, he's using a different Greek word for this word, futile. That's why the translators put futile instead of vain. But it's the same, very similar definition. Goes along with what we had defined, just empty, meaningless, worthless. And he says, you are still in your sins. That's what I want us to focus on here. You are still in your sins. Now, now listen to me. Everybody look up here. Got to get this. Jesus loves you and hates sin and suffering so much, so much that he came down and got involved in it. And he lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, resurrected on the third day so that he could give us fullness of life, truth, purpose, fruitfulness, and power. No matter what we're facing, no matter what we've been up against. So let me ask you this question. How did Paul get past his past? He had a pretty horrible past. I mean, listen to what he says here. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul killed Christians. He killed Christians. How did he get over that? How did he get, get beyond that? I mean, there were certainly, there were probably family members sitting out in the audience as he was proclaiming the gospel, family members who he had murdered their relatives, their, the people that they had loved. How, how did he work through all that? How did they work through that? Well, that's right. Right here, look at verses, uh, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me, he, he just, it just, he's just saturating this, this verse with grace, grace, God's, God's favor upon us, unmerited favor. It's more than that, it's his empowering presence, enabling us to be what he wants us to be, to do what he wants us to do. This is grace, it's favor, his love. And so, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Now, let's talk about our past just for a moment because this is what I think he's helping us deal with. Because without the resurrection, you're still stuck in your sins. This place is a mess and you'll never get beyond your past. And so, the past, let's talk about the past. The past can't really affect us. It can't hurt us anymore. But our present thoughts and feelings about the past can. And it's called emotional baggage. So the past is in the past. It can't hurt you anymore. But it's your thoughts and feelings about the past continue, can continue to victimize you. It's called emotional baggage. What is emotional baggage? It is a combination of sins that I have committed and the sins that have been committed against me. And believe me, they accumulate in a fallen world. You can't go very far in, in this life without taking some hits and also doing some things that are outside of what God has directed. And so... Through the resurrection, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I am set free from my past. That's why he's saying, if Christ hasn't resurrected, you're still in your sins. But if he is resurrected, you're no longer in your sins. And the understanding of that is just 
It's deep, it's rich, it's big to really understand what he means by that. There's a section in the Lord's Prayer, which is a model prayer. I, I use it regularly, teach it in the game of life, but my wife and I, oftentimes when I pray with her, I'll go through it as kind of a checklist of items to work through. And there's a section in the Lord's Prayer that helps us to take out, get rid of that emotional baggage. Anybody know what that section is? Turn to the person next to you and see if they know what section in the Lord's Prayer helps us to take out the garbage in our lives, that emotional baggage that we tend to carry around with us. Real quick, see if they know it. How many were thinking along these lines? Forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. That's what we should be doing regularly, consistently, because nothing will bring you greater healing from past hurts than that, than doing that, letting him process that, working through that. This is what you need to keep in mind. Listen to me. Everybody look up here. You are no longer, listen to me, because of what Christ has done, you are no longer defined by your past. That's the truth of the gospel. You are no longer defined by the past. The, the things you've done to yourself through the sins you've committed or the sins that have been committed against you, the things that people have done to you that have been horrible, you're not defined by that. You're defined by who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And that's what sets you free. That brings freedom. That's why he's saying, hey, you got to keep bringing it back to the cross. Forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Forgive us of our sins as we forgive the, the sins that have been done to us. Imagine this. Imagine driving your car and it has a rear view mirror that covers up most of the windshield. Does that sound a little weird? Yeah. So you gotta, so, so the rear view mirror should be about like that, right. and, and it should be pointed towards you so you can see how good you look as you're driving down the road, okay. But it should be so that you can see the people coming up from behind you, and you got these other mirrors on the side. But imagine if your, your rear view mirror was almost the size of your windshield. I say that because I know a lot of people that live their lives like that. And they're crashing all over the place because they can't see out the road ahead of them because they're too busy looking back. They're too busy looking back. And they're stuck in the past. They're, they're hassled and they're harassed. And they're overwhelmed by everything that either they did or what has been done to them. And how do I know that they're doing that. How do I know that we do that? How do I know that I'm stuck in the past? Well, what will happen is that you will tend to nurse, curse, and rehearse your past regularly. Maybe not out loud. Maybe people said, hey, knock that off. And so you started doing it inwardly, but you, you keep replaying those old messages, those messages over and over again. Now, Never look back to blame, that will keep you trapped, but for understanding. It's okay to look back, to glance back for understanding. You need to have some understanding of why I, now I know why I'm responding the way I'm responding. You don't do that to blame. You do it to understand so that you can be set free from the past. How do you know that you're being healed by the past, over the past? How do you know that that's actually happening in your life? Here's how you know. You can, you can recall it, but you don't relive it. 
and you begin to celebrate yourself as a, as a trophy of God's grace. And you go, you're able to say what Joseph said to his brothers. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good for what is now being done, the saving of many lives, Genesis 50, 20. And what was he doing? He was celebrating, I'm a trophy of God's grace. What is Paul doing here? I killed Christians, but the grace of God rescued me. I'm a trophy of God's grace. That's how he got over it. That's how he worked through his own sin. And, and, and that's how we will get through it. So the, so the resurrection is God stamping paid in full for our sins. Now think about this. After a criminal does his time in jail and fully satisfies the sentence, the law has no more claim on him, and he walks out free. Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sins and walked out free on Easter Sunday, having fully satisfied the sentence. Jesus paid it all. I mean all to set us free from our past, sins that we have committed and the sins that have been committed against us. He not only purchased your forgiveness of sins, your ticket to heaven, but also all the presence and power and peace of God that you will ever need, that you will ever need to face anything and to become a forgiving person. On September the 6th, 2018, Amber Geyer, an off-duty patrol officer in Dallas, entered the apartment of a 26-year-old accountant, Botham Jean. She later said she thought it was her own apartment and mistook Jean for a burglar shooting and killing him. How many are familiar with the story? As it played out, national news. One year later, on October the 1st, 2019, she was found guilty of murder. On October the 2nd, she was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Botham Jean's brother, Brant, was allowed to give a victim impact statement, and he addressed Amber Geyer directly. Listen to what he said. This is just an excerpt, some excerpts from what he said and kind of a summary statement. Listen to what he said. I forgive you, and I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. I love you just like anyone else, and I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did. But I, but I presently want the best for you. The best would be to give your life to Christ. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that, that Botham would want you to do. Again, I, I, I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad on you. I, I don't know if this is possible, but can I, can I give her a hug, please, please? So the judge says yes, and he, Brant, walked across the courtroom and hugged the woman that killed his brother, and she wept. As the judge wiped tears. Those of you that saw that, you couldn't help but weep watching that. It was amazing. That's absolutely amazing. Christians are the most forgiven people in this world. Therefore, we should be the most forgiving people in this world. I understand the hurts that you've had in your life, and it's really hard to get through those, but it's the way that you get through those hurts, the sins that have been committed against you, is to go back to how much Christ has forgiven you. 
To the degree you understand how much he's forgiven you is to the degree you'll be able to forgive others because what you will have to forgive others is nothing compared to what he has already forgiven you. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand the holiness of God or your own sinfulness. And I would encourage you to go back, go back to what you have in him. Believe me, it will bring healing. So it changes the way we think, feel, and live our lives. This is the last one. This is the volitional argument. It changes the way I live. Look at verse 32. I mean, he had already said in verses 30, 31, he says, I die daily. I'm giving my life for the cause of Christ. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beast at Ephesus? We're not sure what that is. Most commentators don't know what he's talking about here. But, um, and then he goes on, he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Just let's, might as well live however we want to live. Paul is saying, every day I face death for people I love. I don't care what it costs. I'm willing to give my life for the cause of Christ. If you want to see how he gave his life for the cause of Christ, go to 2 Corinthians 11 and read through the account of the list of things that he went through. Pretty amazing. If Christ isn't raised, there's no reason to live an unselfish life for Christ. If Christ is raised, then you will want to live an unselfish life for him. In fact, remember what we talked about in Original Sin? Our big problem is that we have spiritual alienation, which immediately created a psychological alienation within us. How's that? Well, if we were meant to walk in the garden in the cool of the day, look into the face of our maker and receive all the life and the love and the liberty we would ever need, but we turned away from that, we're going to be empty and we're going to begin to look to created things to give us what only the creator can give us. And so we're going to turn everything, relationships and jobs and our kids into a means to an end. It's going to be very self-centered. We'll live very selfish lives. That's what's going on with our world today. But if you're filled up with his love and the life that only he can give and the liberty and the freedom that he brings to you, oh my goodness, You're not going to operate out of a deficit. You're going to have an abundance. You're going to want to give up of your life, just as Paul is saying, I'm willing to give my life up. Christ gave his life up for me. I'll give my life up for you so that you can see him more clearly. That's what Paul is saying. It changes the way you live. I know I don't say this near enough, but I want to say this. Thank you to all of you who live unselfish lives for Christ by giving sacrificially, faithfully of your time and your talent and your finances, your treasure to Desert Breeze, through Desert Breeze. And just, just a quick update. I know that Paul, uh, that um, I said, I was going to say Paul was going to give you an update, but it's not Paul, but it's Scott will give you an update here in a few weeks. We're currently working on our plans to build out the rest of this. And uh, our tenants will be out by the end of the year, so we'll be building out the rest of our facility, which is fantastic. We, we need more space. Yeah, praise God, so that we can continue to meet the needs of people here and beyond within the community. So thank you for giving to the Dare You to Move campaign as we continue to grow that so that we can build this out. And then also for many of you that give uh, to the general. Thank you, thank you so much. I know that you do that because of Christ giving his life for you and you're responding. You're responding as a result of that. Now, how do you break a guy like Paul? 
I mean, how do you break a guy like Paul? Criticize him? You try to criticize him? Think that's going to have an effect on him? God adores and accepts him. Hate him? God loves him and gave his life for him. Kill him? You're doing him a favor by sending him home early. <laughs> to live as Christ, to die as gain. That's what the Apostle Paul said. Bring it on. I'm going to live to proclaim it. If, if it takes a lot of pain and perplexity, I'm in. Because I, this is true. And I'm going to proclaim his name and make much of him. So how does the resurrection change the way I live? Well, the resurrection means that, that we have his resurrection power within us. Romans 8.11 says, now check this out. This is a wonderful verse. If the spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, then that same spirit will make alive your mortal body. And that's true. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. Do you hear me? Do I need to talk a little louder? Oh my goodness, what are you facing? What are you overwhelmed by? Come back to that truth, resurrection power. It's gonna change the way you live. Absolutely the way that you live. He also says, Paul says, in Ephesians 1, 19 through 20, he talks about this immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So we have his power. Also means no death for us. If you're a believer, no death for you. Just fall asleep. Wake up into the arms of your Savior. John eleven twenty five. 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The resurrection also means that we can be bold and take greater risk with our lives for Christ. Acts 15, 26, describing the early church. This is what they said. Men who have risked their lives for the sake of Christ. Another thing that's true about the resurrection is that it's the promise of new heavens and a new earth. Revelation 21, Isaiah 65. But here's what I love. It is the promise of new minds, hearts, and bodies. How many, like me, are really looking forward to a new body? Praise God. By the way, in heaven, you'll all be bald. Yep. God made a few perfect heads and he put hair on the rest. Okay, just keep that in mind. Actually, I used to tell people that I'll have, when you look for me in heaven, I'll be the guy with the big blonde afro. Yep, we'll have new bodies. That's the promise. So there's a song I grew up singing in church. Maybe you're familiar with it. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. So how can I be a recipient of this? Well, it's right there on your notes. The gospel is found in verses three through four. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So the, it's, it's the good news. The gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe have everlasting life. What does it mean to repent and believe? Well, that's in verses one and two of our text. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. Receive it, stand on it, hold fast to it. That's it. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? We'll prepare our hearts for communion. 
So, Father God, we are overwhelmed with praise that Christ, our Savior, died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. May this historical fact of Jesus' resurrection become a daily reality of faith powerfully transforming every part of our lives. May we think, feel, and live for your glory as we receive it, stand on it, hold fast to it. In Jesus' beautiful name, amen.